you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with your friend, John O'Leary. Britt Frank is our guest today, and you may not know her name now, but I think you won't forget it after this episode comes to its conclusion. She is a trauma specialist. She's a licensed psychotherapist, and she's the author of the book. It's called The Science of Stuck. She's committed to unraveling the myths that keep us stuck and stressed. And Britt offers a fresh perspective on mental health and on well-being. Drawing from her personal story of struggle, and let me tell you this, it is a wild story of struggle. She also utilizes insightful clinical research and the powerful concept of micro-yeses. Britt joins us today for a down-to-earth, honest conversation that will boldly inspire you to break through whatever is holding you back in life. My friends, no matter how successful or high achieving you might be, everyone experiences moments in our lives of stagnation or feelings of being stuck in our lives, maybe in our relationships, in our careers, with our bodies, in our habits, and in our lives. This is a conversation to help you get unstuck and launch forward. The conversation today will be emotional. There'll be moments of heartbreak, moments of profound overcoming, laughter, joy, and more than all of that, my friends, it's going to be a conversation that is incredibly practical for you. So to get maximum coverage out of this one, do me a favor, open wide your heart, your mind, your favorite Live Inspired journals. I bring on my friend. She's about to be yours. Her name is Britt Frank. Britt, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much for having me. I am beyond excited to be here talking to you today. So many of my guests are tuning in from um, California, New York, Canada. We've had Australians and folks from New Zealand and Africa and all over the globe join us. It's rare that I have a friend in the Midwest, maybe even in my own state. So tell our friends tuning in from 130 nations where you're uh, taking the call from today. So I'm from New York, but I live in Kansas City. I tell people I'm a New Yorker who lives in Kansas on purpose, and I will never go back. Well, well welcome to the Midwest. You've found home, and we're mm -hmm. glad you did. For those who may have bumped into the name Britt Frank, maybe on a bookshelf or maybe on a podcast, but they can't remember where, and they meet you at a grocery store, uh, and they say, Britt, tell, tell me about what you do. How do you answer that? Britt Frank, what do you do? 
Um, so I try to human the best I can. My job is I'm a psychotherapist and a speaker and my first book, The Science of Stuck came out last year, but really my work is on helping people, you know, make that jump between, we all know what we're supposed to do and yet it doesn't get done. And there's a reason and it's not laziness. It's not craziness. It's not lack of capacity. There are some real mechanics to getting unstuck from anything. And that's what I do. I get people from stuck to go. Well, I'm going to have you join me at MCI. Uh, You're going to board a plane. We're heading back to Long Island. So we're going to leave the the comforts and the beauty of the Midwest for a moment. Head home. Uh, Talk about growing up. I know it had a massive influence on your life, both positively and negatively, but just bring me back to Long Island. You know, when you think of trauma, obviously your story, traumatic. Here's this life-defining traumatic event that changes the course of everything. And I did not know until I was in my 20s that I had a traumatic upbringing. I really thought everything was fine because on the surface, it it looked fine. You know, all of these really high level things. I had enough food. We never had to worry about our basic needs. My parents are married. We all live together. But there are a lot of ways that trauma creeps into family systems. And it wasn't until I developed drug addictions, eating disorders, really, really damaging, very chaotic relationship patterns and such that I I was totally baffled. It's like, why is it that part of me knows everything was fine, but there's this other part of me that is screaming day and night. You're not okay. This is not okay. What happened was not okay. But if you grow up with things being normalized, they're normalized. And I did not grow up in a, let's talk about our feelings, go to therapy, unpack our story. It was don't speak, don't think, don't talk, don't question. This is what we do. You know, you're loyal to the family at all costs. And so that was, that was my normal. A therapist, a very skilled therapist later on was like, Hey, bro, that wasn't normal. Like that, that's no, that's actually trauma. That's not trauma. Trauma is war, assault, injury, natural disaster, oppression, but really, really, really bad things can happen that don't fall under those neat and clean trauma categories. So I really, really had a hard time. I really felt, I I know the word crazy is very tenuous. There's no such thing as a crazy person. It's not a thing, but I felt crazy until I learned what I now teach and preach and do. When did you start feeling that way? Because when you uh, are cruising around the beaches of, of Long Island, it's just the life you live. It's the air you breathe and you don't know that you're struggling probably even. So at what age did you realize Gosh, man, I'm feeling anxiety all the time. I'm dealing with some depression. Uh, like three. Seriously, <laughs> I was a super depressed. I was a loner. I was bullied mercilessly. It was really, really hard. You're gonna make me cry. I've never cried on a podcast, so I'm gonna like really try to hold myself. Well, let me tell you, I've never not cried on a podcast. So <laughs> if you begin to, we'll share something in common. Oh my gosh. It was, it, I just didn't understand. I felt like I got sent out of the human factory with pieces missing. And I felt like everyone had the lock on how to be a person. And I just didn't understand what I didn't understand how to do it. I didn't understand what was wrong with me, that people didn't like me. Why are these girls bullying me? Like, why can't I, I really wanted to connect. I didn't know how, um, because the, the nature of my traumas were largely sexual that, you know, does create this very sense of shame and othering, you know, whether or not you disclose it, you understand it there, there's a thing that happens to sexual abuse survivors where you do feel separated and people may not know, but they can perceive there's just a disconnect. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was really not until I started noticing my symptoms were getting worse and worse and worse that it was like, well, maybe the things that I thought were true about my life weren't. And that was really painful to come to terms with the reality of what was versus my ideal of what should have been. 
Mm. So you you put the lid on it though during your childhood and into your adolescent years, and you just climb. I mean, you you made it in a school that would not have wasted a, a stamp saying O'Leary, you may not join us up here at Duke University. So like you, you had a successful, in the earthly sense, perspective of uh, of climbing academically. When, when you went to Duke, what were you looking for? It's really interesting because again, I don't know why I was fortunate enough that school was my refuge. School was easy. Like learning was, if I could have my head in a book, I didn't have to deal with anything around me. And I was fortunate enough that my brain like was organized that the traditional academic learning environment that worked for me. So that was not hard. When I got to Duke, I thought, okay, I feel so separate and you know other. Now I'm at this big fancy school with all these fancy. I didn't grow up wealthy. Everyone at Duke, incredible, like wealth beyond the type of wealth I even knew existed in real life. And everyone is brilliant, and everyone's families are brilliant. And so that sense of I don't belong, I am other, that, and Duke was hard. School was never hard. And then I get to Duke, I'm like, oh my God, I have to study. This is horrible. And I struggled with my grades at first. I figured that out. Like, yes, you actually have to read the books and study to do well at that school. But again, you'd be surprised at such a prestigious university that the human problems are just the same. Drugs, eating disorders, crazy making relationships, loneliness, depression, like all of it, PTSD, the gamut. And so I struggled there too. And I wrestled, I made it through, I made it through. Well, I got a job. I worked in, you know, before becoming a therapist, I tried to work in the corporate world doing advertising and did not do well there. How long were you working in the corporate world? A couple of years, long enough to go, this is not for me. And then, you know, I was doing my own personal recovery at the same time. And there came a point where I became functional enough in my own life and excited enough about this work. I'm a trauma specialist now that I'm like, all I want to do is read about geek out about talk about this. And so in my early thirties, I pivoted and went back to graduate school at KU where I later became an instructor. And now I do this like obnoxiously yeah. all day. This is all I want to talk about. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to let you off that easy because there, there's a gap of about 10 years that uh, were some wild child years for you. And I think it, it grounds you in ways that some other folks who might do your work may not have been grounded and connects you with the patients and the clients that you serve in ways that maybe others who have not experienced total brokenness, massive mistake-making. You've done that. And so it connects you now to them. And I think with many of our listeners. So I'm going to have you walk through a few of the sidesteps along your journey forward. You joined, no, not a sorority, a cult. You joined a religious cult. Talk about that. So I'm a Jewish Long Islander. And what's the best way to go as far to the opposite end of the extreme spectrum as my upbringing was to find a, so I was in Northern California and I found, I sort of met these people from this very fundamental, again, my disclaimer, not all cults are Nexium. They're not all murder cults or sex cult. You know, there's a large spectrum under which cults fall. It was still extreme, but not like that. And these people were so kind. I had never had people just want to sit and ask questions. And very quickly I learned, oh, if I do what they say, read what they read, talk like they talk, wear what they wear and do everything I'm told, I will have an instant access to family, connection, belonging. And and people who are, I used to be all judgy when you see that stuff. It's like, I would never let myself do that. I'm too smart. It's like, no, anywhere where there's unaddressed pain, there is potential to get sucked into lots of different types of underworlds. 
And so that cult life, people say, like, how, you know, was that horrible? And the the sad truth is it was a refuge. I mean, I went, that doesn't last. That's not sustainable. But cult life, I fell into very quickly. And it was the first time things quieted down. I wasn't being overtly sexually abused. I wasn't surrounded by drugs. I wasn't in these overtly chaotic, violent relationships. Eventually, I realized this is not a life. This is not sustainable. This doesn't work. And so I left. If you define cult as just a group of people clustered around a topic with a very rigid set of rules, if you do what they say, they love you. If you don't, they shun you. There's cults everywhere, the cult of wellness and fitness and all of the things. I really do understand the appeal of just being told what to do so you can feel finally like you belong somewhere. Mm. So you're, you're dealing with that. You're dealing with the upbringing that you mentioned, or at least you whispered some of the things that you endured as a child and as a young woman. You have an eating disorder. And from our listeners, many of them reach out to us and share that they, their spouse, a partner or a child is currently dealing with an eating disorder. Uh, Talk about your experience with that. And it was interesting because one of the tenets of the the group I was in, the cult group, was fasting. And so you take a group that like really pedestals this idea of fasting with someone who doesn't want to eat because of an eating disorder. And I was a really good faster. Mm -hmm. I, I had anorexia masquerading as spiritual integrity. It was very odd. And so the thing that I learned about eating disorders, having had um, anorexia, binge eating disorder, orthorexia, which is one some people don't know about, and that's the obsession. It's like an OCD about food. You'll eat, but you won't eat unless you know every ingredient, every calorie, every macro. And if you don't have your precise set of foods, you go into sort of a panic spiral. So that's called orthorexia. Eating disorders are never about food and they're never about being thin. They're always, and I don't use always very often, They are always about unaddressed pain and an injury that has been left so profoundly unattended that our systems adapt by finding ways. And I was a drug addict too. And I'll disclose that. I, and not like, not that there's a good kind of drug, but I smoked crystal meth, which is a very humiliating thing to admit being like, I went to Duke and look at me and I wear my suits and I speak to people. And that's, you know, like that's, there are no good drugs, but crystal meth's a really, really bad one. And so whether it's an eating disorder or drugs, it's never about the symptom. We all focus on the symptom, not on the, well, what happened to you that this now makes sense? What happened to you that restricting your food and counting your macros and not going out and knocking yourself out with sleeping pills at six o'clock so you don't have to worry about being hungry? What is that really about? Not like, how do we stop this behavior? It's what's the function? What job is this doing? All of our symptoms, all of them serve a function or they wouldn't be there. And if we get curious about the function, the function of my eating disorder was as long as I was focused here, I didn't have to deal with any of the other things over there. And over there was scary and really uncomfortable and humiliating. And so, yes, I'm just going to obsess about my food intake. The more you you share what you were going through, the more shocking it is you and I are having this conversation because you are, you're lined up to find yourself without a home and without serious love and without safety and making every bad decision in the book because you already were. When do you hit bottom? And I I know that's an expression, you know, love, but ultimately there was a turning point. What was that for you? My definition of rock bottom is wherever you say I'm done and start doing things different. You can hit rock bottom and keep digging. Just rock bottom is just wherever you're done. It doesn't have to be the extreme. My rock bottom was my justification for doing drugs was If I have other people around me, I'm a social user. I am not an addict. 
I realize that that is not intelligence, but that's what my, you know, we all have parts of ourselves and the parts of myself committed to this not healthy lifestyle. We're like, as long as there are no people around, doesn't count. Like not in a day. That's like the, you know, druggies equivalent of calories don't count if you eat someone else's French fries. And <laughs> like, really, really. And then there was one night and it was, you know, five in the morning and I'm in this filthy, grimy bathroom and you know, drug paraphernalia is everywhere. Everyone had either, you know, been knocked out or left. And I was all by myself and I had the pipe in my hands. And at that moment, all of the parts of myself sort of came together in their little boardroom in my head. And they all, you know, agreed, okay, this is a problem. So that was, that was the day I stopped doing that. That was the last day I used drugs, but everything changed when I started to learn that all of the parts of ourselves, the ones that we learn to fear or hate or feel ashamed of all of our parts have value. And if we understand, you don't have to fight your brain. You don't have to get rid of the parts of you. You need to understand them and work with them. Sort of like having a company full of employees that you can't fire. It's like, you can't fire them. So we need to sort of give them other jobs to do mm -hmm. and grit all of the things that I love about my life now you know, my capacity, my, my empathy connect, like all the things I know came from the, you know, darkest parts of me. Once I started to understand them and unburden them from those extreme roles. Walk me through slowly that 501 in the morning and then 502, you, you are holding a light bulb with crystal meth and a lighter. This isn't, you know, I stayed at the bar 20 minutes longer than I probably should have. Like this, this is a train wreck and you're taking part in all kinds of risky behaviors. How do you shift from that? I'm glad the board got together and said, it's time to do different. It's time to live again. It's time to get healthy and well. But how do you do that when you don't have the resources and the network and the wherewithal to take the next right step? And the light bulb, if people are not meth users, if you you know try to throw out your pipes because you're never going to do drugs again, you can actually smoke crystal meth using a light bulb. That's the little MacGyver hack for uh, drug users. Again, what I'm about to say, Say, I was lucky that I had the privilege and the resources and the access to get the things that I needed. Not everybody does. So that's my disclaimer. I don't know why I was fortunate enough to have resources, but I was. So the problem wasn't how do I do this? The problem was all of the different parts of me were at war with each other. As long as I had a part of me committed to this idea that I could do, I could escape my pain, then I was never going to change. Change from anything, whether you're stuck with a career decision or like me, a, just a disastrous, you know, excuse for a life, stuck becomes unstuck when all the parts of ourselves come to agreement. And there are ways of doing that and ways of working with that. But as long as I was at war with myself, as long as I was constantly fighting against myself, change wasn't going to happen. At five o'clock, I had the light bulb in my hand. At 5.02, all the parts of myself started stopped arguing and they all agreed, this is a problem. And once everyone agreed and there were no more excuses, this is a problem, this is your problem. You caused this problem. You're not a victim. You didn't cause what happened to you, but you did choose to do this. So we're going to own this. We're going to just grit our teeth, suck it up, tell someone what's going on and follow our green lights, which for me, we're able to include really good therapy and a really good rehab facility and an amazing community, like brick by brick. Beautiful. Take me through from brick to brick. You, you've written and shared in the past that one of the most important steps is being truthful about yourself for yourself. Why, why is that so important? Oh, that one's such a hard pill to swallow. It's like, I don't lie. And most people I agree are not liars. Most people are not consciously trying to run away from big, bad things. 
but we're so, you know, often we're trained to fear the, the, you know, the things that we, the mental health world calls it intrusive thoughts, where all of a sudden a thought flies across your head and you're horrified. Like, how could I have thought that? That wasn't me. And it's like, you know what? The humans are complex and thoughts don't cause any harm until they turn into actions. And so we need to know, like, all of your thoughts are okay. You don't have to be ashamed of them. We need to learn how to skillfully, like, I call it leading our inner team. Like, you have to learn how to coach the team of voices in your head. And when you can do that without screaming at them, without, you know, abusing them, then everything calms down. And when your brain is no longer on fire, life starts to work. Brick by brick for me started with learning that, we're not just one singular thing. We all have parts of our, part of me knows I should go to the gym. Yet this other part of me is sitting on the couch watching Ted Lasso, which is an awesome show, but like that doesn't get the job of fitness done. Watching people play soccer does not a healthy body make, but I learned this model. I found a book. I found therapists who understood what's called the parts model of wellness. I learned about trauma and PTSD and that it's not just for veterans, though that's certainly a category. And brick by brick was not just knowing, cause we all, we're all drowning in information. Like most people know, like, don't do that, do this. But why is there this gap between what we know and what we do? And the answer is because we're at war with ourselves. So you put out the fire, you stop the war, our choices become clear. And then the things we wanna do, we have the, whatever it is, resilience, grit, tenacity, determine, whatever to, to go and do it. So it was one micro step at a time. It was not like, now I don't do drugs and I'm a therapist with a book. It was some days it was Brit, eat something. Brit, don't die today. Brit, call someone and tell them what you're about to do so you don't do it. And these very, very microscopic, I call them micro yeses. Right. If you can find a micro yes, you don't, have to, you don't have to finish line. You don't have to get to mile 26. Just find a way today. Find something to say yes to today. Mm. And a series of tiny yeses builds a life. You talked about being a coach and you got all these team members, part of your brain, part of your life, part of your, your human experience. And your job is not to scream and yell and scold them, but ultimately organize them so that you collectively keep taking the next right step forward. And then you even use a little word called anxiety. And you have a quote that you open the book at. I'm going to begin talking about your book by asking about this. It's, a, it's an unusual quote. So here we go. Anxiety is a superpower. Without it, we stay stuck. Madness need not be all breakdown. It may also be breakthrough. Tell me what that means. Anxiety is a superpower is my line. Madness may be not breakdown, but breakthrough. That's a quote. You know, anxiety, we're taught to, oh my God, I'm anxious. How do I get rid of my anxiety? But I think of anxiety like the check engine light of your brain's dashboard. Like if you're driving a car with no check engine light, how are you supposed to know if there's a problem? Anxiety is awful. And I, I've had anxiety and panic since I was little, itty bitty. But if we don't understand the function of anxiety is to warn us, then we're going to try to get either get rid of it. And if you disable your check engine light, that's not going to go well. Our pain receptors in our body are needed. So we know when there's a problem, pain is not fun or good, but it is functional. And we're so trained to fear our own bodies. Anxiety is a series of physiological cues that signal a problem. That's all it is. Now I understand it's complicated and our lives are complicated, but if you ask a hundred people, what's anxiety, you're going to get a hundred different answers. Anxiety is a series of physiological cues, body cues, body sensations that signal that something needs your attention. 
And most people fight that. Well, I don't know why my brain is feeling unsafe. I don't know why my check engine light is on. Well, I don't know why my check engine light goes on either. My car's not fancy enough that it'll tell me exactly what the diagnostic is. But if your check engine light is on and you don't understand the problem, take it somewhere where someone can help you troubleshoot. Anxiety is a signal. It's a symptom, but the symptom is a signal. It is not the problem itself. What about for our friends who don't have anxiety occasionally, but they live there all the time? Oh, I still get that. It's such an, I mean, to be, you know, I alternated between depression and anxiety, you know, kind of bouncing back and forth. Then the, if you're living with chronic anxiety, the absolute worst thing to do is to ask why the anxiety it's like right now your brain is not logical. Like your brain's not logical. So don't worry about why the anxiety let's focus not on why you have it, but on what your choices are so we can manage it because you're not gonna get to your why from the physiological state that you're in. Like you can't logic your way from the same brain state that got you stuck. So don't ask why, like start with why is like this beautiful law of the land in the business world. And I have great respect for it, but start with why is not the answer. If you're feeling stuck with anxiety or depression or you're stuck in a relationship or whatever the thing is, but especially with anxiety, don't ask why ask what, what am I willing to say yes to? What are my choices? And then that calms your brain down and then you can get your why like later. Well, you used a word there that I loved. You also wrote an entire book about it. The word is stuck. So for those of us who are stuck in a dead-end job or we're stuck with limiting beliefs or we're stuck in a lousy relationship or we're stuck with a drug addiction or we're stuck always being anxious and it's just who I am. First of all, why do we get stuck? Why does that happen in the first place? I'm so glad you said this is who I am. Okay, this is who I am is not biological reality. Like our brains change. We know this. The ner- people way smarter than I am have figured out that your brain is not a static thing, that this is just here's your brain, here's who you are. It's here's who you are today, and that can change based on your choices and access and safety. But who you are today is not who you are in perpetuity. So that is not a thing at all. Why we get stuck largely is because we're hung up on answering the question. Why do we get stuck? Now I can answer it. Come into my office. I'll get out my whiteboard. We'll do a full workup of your history and your genetics and your family of origin, but that doesn't answer the question. I like knowing the why, because I'm, I analyze people for a living. Like I love a deep dive into the why, but what I found is most people don't actually want to know why am I stuck? They want to know how do I not be stuck? How do I live? And so I can love my family and relax at the end of the day and not go to the bar the second five o'clock on Friday hits and not feel anxious on Sunday night because I'm going to work on Monday morning. The why is not the key. The what am I willing to say yes to is. And we have to shrink those options down so they're small enough that we can get to a yes. Most people, if you're stuck in a dead end job, get frozen with this. Well, I don't know what I want to do. And what kind of training am I going to need? And like, how am I going to feed my family? Those questions are way too big for your brain to answer. So let's shrink it down. What are your micro yeses today? That might mean calling up a friend. That might mean creeping around on LinkedIn. That might mean doing an honest assessment of your skills. Do you need more training? Do you need whatever? Honest assessment of your finances. Like, could you live on less? Do you need to address some debt? So you're not required to stay in a job that you hate. Um, But don't start with why we get again, assuming that you're safe, you have access to your basic needs. That's what we're talking about here. You get stuck because you're so focused on the why that you ignore that there are solutions lying around you all over the place waiting for you to go pick them up. So you you are trained in this work now, what's the most frequent 
pain that people bring into your office? What's the most frequent conversation that you just keep hearing from your clients? Hmm. This is, and this one really, like I have such a heart connect to this question because I deeply understand it. And the question, and it's the same question from CEOs to suicidal teenagers. Everyone asks this question. Why is it, Britt, that there's this part of me that knows what I'm supposed to do, but there's this other part of me that like takes over and the thing I know I have to do, whatever it is, I'm, I'm not getting it done. Like what's wrong with me? That part of me knows and part of me does nothing. Am I bad? Like some derivative of, am I bad? Am I crazy? And the answer is a resounding, no, you're not bad. And there's no such thing as crazy. And we can figure this out. You said that before, and I was going to ask you, but since you brought it up a second time, now I have to. I have no choice. There's no such thing as crazy. And you wrote about that as well. So I'm intrigued. What do you mean by that? There's no such thing as crazy. So I have severe mental illness on both sides of my family, as far as the eye can see. I am not saying that mental illness is not real. I take psych meds. I go to therapy. Like, do all of the things. What I am saying is that if you look up close at someone's story and I have gone to the deep ends and jumped in, I've also worked in patient psychiatric hospitals. I've worked in the foster care system. I've worked with psychotic children. I understand that if you don't understand the story, things look crazy, but I call this the spider web analogy. If you see someone walk into a spider web from across the street, it's going to look like they're going absolutely nuts. Like they're walking, everything is fine. And then they start like freaking out. But if you don't know that there's a spider web there, that's going to look crazy. But if you, if you walk across the street and ask them, Hey, what's going on? And they say there was a spider web in my face. <laughs> Suddenly everything that looked crazy makes total sense. And humans are the same way. I have never in my personal or clinical life seen someone whose symptoms did not make sense up close. The spider webs create the symptoms. And just because you don't know what they are or you can't see them doesn't mean they're not there. Crazy is a narrative. It's a judgment. It's an interesting adjective that we put on things, but it's not a reality. There's no such thing as crazy. You write a lot about shadow intelligence. It's a cool term. It's a powerful idea. Tell our audience what it is. So IQ, you know, is your measure of cognitive intelligence. And then there's EQ, which we all know is emotional intelligence and social intelligence. And my contribution to that body of work, I call shadow intelligence. And so, okay, well, Britt, what's a shadow? So a cycle, so if you look at nature, how do shadows happen? Shadows are cast when light is blocked. It's pretty simple. There's nothing like woo or scary or mystical about that. Shadows are cast when light is blocked. Psychological shadows are cast when our awareness is blocked. So if I don't know that there's an injury and I'm limping, like I need to attend to the injury in order to solve this problem. So shadow intelligence is the degree to which you are aware of all of those things that are impacting your choices, your patterns, and your behavior. And it's really hard to know what you don't know. And everyone says the same thing. Well, if, I, if I'm not aware of it, how am I supposed to become aware of it? And there are lots of ways looking at the things that trigger you, looking at the types of shows that you watch, looking at your browser history. Like, where do you go late at night when you're doom scrolling and you can't sleep? Like that will point you towards, and shadows aren't always bad. They can be, some people are so disconnected from their power or their innovation or their creativity or their capacity to love that those things become shadowed. So shadows are not good or bad. They're just things about us that we're not aware of. And when we have shadow intelligence, we are no longer driven by those things. We are in charge and we're in the driver's seat and life works better that way. So, so much of our life is spent scrolling and racing and carpooling and just sprinting. 
which doesn't provide a lot of opportunity for us to evaluate the shadows in the light. How do you personally, whether it's in your work with those that you serve or in the reflection with the person in the mirror, how do you make time to identify those shadows in the light? Well, first of all, again, the racing around, driving the kids to softball games and then driving around and going to work and doing all of the things is functional. Most people, if you ask them to slow down, get very fidgety. Now, they may not say they're anxious, but they get activated. It's like, I can't sit alone with my thoughts because I don't know what's in there and I don't know what I'm going to find. And that's true for most people, whether you have high level trauma or not. It's like, we don't relax because the thought of slowing down and sitting with ourselves is frightening. So I would tell people, don't worry about making time to dig into your shadows. Let's just start with like getting connected to your choices. And so what that might mean is getting out of autopilot, like autopilot is the fastest way to being unconscious. So, you know, instead of making time to journal for half an hour on a Tuesday, how about you change the road you take to work on Monday? How about you decide consciously, what do I want to listen to on the radio? Do I really need to hear another news program? Or maybe I want to listen to music today. What kind of music? We start with the really, really easy stuff so we can build the internal capacity to tolerate those harder questions like who am I and what do I want and what's true about me? You can't do that work if you don't build the muscle. You build the muscle of shadow intelligence by starting with tiny, again, those microscopic choice points. What do you want to wear today? Are you wearing those clothes just because you grabbed something or is there a reason you put them on? Start there. Practice awareness with the easy stuff and then you'll have the muscle strength for the harder stuff. When you're one-to-one -one with a patient, a client, do you share with them your story? Mm -hmm. so, some folks in, in the kind of work you do never use the word I, mm -hmm. me, uh, my history. And I think there's power in acknowledging that I'm wounded too. So I'm just, how, how does that play out in the work you're doing? I break a lot of the rules. The mental health model that is still being taught is therapists sit on their high horse and we are observers and we're not participants and we don't disclose and we're perfect and we're fine and healthy and you're the problem and you're the patient. Here's your diagnostic and your disease. Like that is crap. Sorry. Like that is not, I, I am so fundamentally opposed to that. Yes. Boundary. I don't just share with my clients because I want them to understand me. I share very mindfully if I think there's something in service to their need that is relevant to them. And I think therapists do a great disservice to clients when we're not real. That's why it's like, yeah, I have a shiny professional resume, but I have a really sordid, gritty backstory and both are relevant. And people know they're going to be safe in my space because I'm not going to judge. I smoked meth out of a light bulb in a dirty bathroom at 5 a.m. I'm not going to judge you because you ate cake out of the trash can or because you bought two bottles of Chardonnay or because you didn't want to go to your kid's soccer tournament. Like I got you. I can see you and hold space for whatever people bring into the room. And I think Think there's value in that. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Henry Nowen. One of the things he writes is that what is most private and personal is also most universal and sacred. That the thing that you think is the dirtiest, the most disappointing aspect of your journey is also the thing that somehow shockingly connects us most to our fellow humans. So I think whether it's eating cake out of the trash can or uh, not wanting to go to the soccer tournament kids this weekend, I get it. Uh, I'm going to share a couple quotes with you that I wrote down as I went through your book, and I'd like you to tell me what it means. You can't think your way out of being stuck. You can't think your way out of being stuck. If only, right? If only we could all just think our way out of our problems. I wouldn't have a job. I work with very high functioning, high, like go get the, do the thing types of people. 
there's a reason we get stuck and it's not because we don't know logically what to do. But again, I wasn't given driver's ed for the brain. I don't know if you were, but I was never taught that like there's a part of your brain responsible for thinking and logic. And then there's a part of your brain responsible for survival. Our brains are not wired for success. They are wired for survival. Now you can change the wiring. You can change the default settings. But if you don't know that your brain is wired first for survival, not for success or happiness, then you're not going to be able to make very good choices. So you can't think your way out of your problems because the thinking part of your brain is not available when your brain is in survival mode. It's like having the most amazing computer in the world, but if there's no Wi-Fi, you're not getting online. Like, I don't care how awesome your computer is, no Wi-Fi, no internet. And logic is very much the same. If the survival part of your brain is activated, there is no logic to be found. Like it, it just won't work. You cannot get from your head to your heart using only logic. Doesn't work. I wish it did. Cause I love just being logical and in my head because heart is where the, the painful stuff is like heart, gut, Essence, being, that's tough. Head, no problem. But you can't think your way out of being stuck. I'm so sorry. I wish we could. So if you can't think your way, then how do you move your way out of being stuck? Mm, such a good question. So it helps to know that these brains of ours are attached to these things called bodies. And we all have central nervous systems. And again, it's like learning. How, I tell people, you know, we treat our brains like they're an automatic and our brains are a stick shift. And if you don't know that you can't get from grinding all week to relaxing on the couch with your family, you can't go from fifth to first. You have to know how to downshift. And there are ways to do that. Like, you know, doing rituals, having spiritual practices, even simple things like using your senses. Like I have different scented things that I do when I'm going to big events and my brain is now trained. If I smell this particular smell, my brain is now going to get pumped up and primed to do a, a big task. I also have other things that I do. I have music that I listen to when I want to shift down. So just like a car, you can't go from 90 miles an hour and fifth right to first, or you're going to have a very damaged car. Our bodies are the same thing. And so we need to learn how to shift. And there are lots and lots of ways of doing that. What about diet uh, in a healthy way? So uh, how does diet influence the way we uh, continually healthily move forward in our lives? So, ugh, and I'm not a dietitian and I'm not an MD, but I'll speak anecdotally. You know, I am not, you know, having had an eating disorder and having been incredibly rigid about every single thing that I put into my body, there's merit in eating nutrient dense foods. It's really hard for your brain to do what your brain needs to do. If your diet is like mine for a while was like coffee, Red Bull and cigarettes. Like you're not going to be able to function and execute at the level you want to play at. If you're not fueling your body, that said, sometimes the healthiest decision I can make is to go to like McDonald's and eat a cheeseburger. Like some days the kale is the medicine and some days the cheeseburger is the medicine. And you need to develop a relationship with yourself that you know the difference when eating a cheeseburger is harming you versus helping you. And for me, sometimes the, the biggest, you know, health bumps I get are from not being rigid. Like I'm going to eat cake and I'm going to eat cheese and I'm going to enjoy the foods that are around us because life is short. But if you're paying attention, you'll know where the line is between enjoying and using things to escape, like celebrations, whatever they are, whether you're a drinker or you're an eater or whatever, celebrations should bring you closer to yourself, not take you away from yourself. So food is part of that. If you're paying attention, you're going to know how to sort of organize how much of what, and I am a big advocate of nutrient dense plus fun equals life. <laughs> 
So the, the next quote, an explanation is not an excuse of a behavior. That's probably, you asked me the most common question I get. The most common pushback I get from people is, well, this whole brain thing sounds like an excuse. This whole trauma thing just sounds like an excuse for bad, you know, I smoked meth to avoid my pain. Well, that sounds like an excuse. It's like, I'm not excusing it. Explaining the origin of a symptom is not me co-signing on it. It's not me saying it's okay. It's saying, here's what happens. And when you explain what happens, then you know how to solve it. So you can't solve a problem until you can explain it and understand it. So I'm very big on, I can explain, there's an explanation for just about everything that we do, but that doesn't mean it's okay. So explanation is not a synonym for an excuse. And I want people to be very clear. And my clients all know this. We can explain all day and we will, but explanation does not give you a hall pass to do bad things. <laughs> Kids, I hope you heard that one loud and clear. All right. So they, they my four little ones are nodding their heads. Good. Final quote. You can't change anything about the past, but you can change everything about your future when you understand how your brain processes the present. Mm, that was my, I think my, one of my favorite things to learn and to share in that book, you know, people say, well, I don't want to deal with myself because what's the point of looking backwards. You can't change the past. And it's like, no, that's true. You know, and certainly you are here to say like what happened happens. Like we can't go back and redo it. And I wouldn't want to redo a th single thing about my life if I could, but we can't change the past. But when you understand how your brain has organized your past, which is what's happening here and now, everything about your future changes. So it's like, you know, your rear view mirror is smaller than your windshield, but you need your rear view mirror. And if you're looking at your patterns, your behaviors, your habits, whatever the thing is, we don't need to like live there, but we need a rear view mirror so we can check out where we've been. So we know where we are, so we can choose where we go next. You've been living this thing for a while. You've been serving as a human being for quite a while, and it's a wild roller coaster ride you've been on. What, what has surprised you most? You've spent a lot of time looking in the mirror at your own life. What has surprised you most about your journey? <laughs> what surprised me most is, and this was actually what aggravated me the most. Again, our lives are not easy. Our pain is not easy. But the stuff that we need to know to get from here to where we want to be is not rocket science. Like I was horrified. I'm like this many years of destroying my sanity, destroying my health. There's no craziness, but destroying my sense of well-being, like all of this pain and chaos and damage that I caused that was done to me, all of it. This is the solution. Like I can do that. That's easy. I spent how much money on grad school and therapy to know this. So yay. You know, the solutions, the problems are complex. The solutions are not. It's not rocket science. It's neuroscience. And these very tiny, itty bitty microscopic yeses build a life. And anybody can find a yes to some degree. I don't care if the yes is you decide not to die today. Like that's a micro yes. Great. Like, cool. Let's bank that. And they compound. So we're so quick to minimize our, our wins. And I was so surprised by the power of honoring our wins versus just like, well, yeah, I did this, but I didn't do that. Like all of our wins count, no matter how small and they build and they grow and they compound and that matters. Brent, you've, you've done a little bit of speaking. You've written a book. You've done some work with, with your counseling. Can you share your favorite story? about someone who came up to you after a presentation or someone who read your book or heard a podcast or you visited with this person one-to-one -one in therapy and uh, their takeaway from that experience? 
Mm. Oh, that's such a good, ugh. so, I mean, my entire work is stories. I collect, totally. I sit with, I witness. So the, the, I'll just share the first one that jumped into my head. If you ask me tomorrow, it might be different. So I was speaking at this conference for very, I mean, everyone there impeccably dressed top of their game. Every, I mean, like talk about imposter syndrome. Like I'm there, like, I have nothing to share with these people, but you know, I, I know what I know. I said what I say. And this woman comes up to me after, and she was a formidable, a stunning, just like industry leader. And I'm like, uh oh, like I'm braced. I'm like, I can take feedback, you know, bring it. And she starts crying and tears are streaming down her face. And she said, for the first time in my life, I actually understand like what's going on. I understand what's going on with my kids. Like the, the problem is not that we're crazy or lazy or that we're broken. Like there's no such thing as a broken person. We get injured, but like, there's no such thing as crazy. And there's no such thing as a broken soul. You know, our bodies can break, but our souls cannot. And this, you know, very buttoned up woman just cried. She gave me a huge hug. And she said, thank you for making sense of stuff that I was just completely baffled by. And that that's really the most heart connecting thing I can think of. Like, I want to help people make sense. If you can make sense of your stuff, you can change it. If you're constantly spinning in the why you're not going to. And so that was one of my favorites. Well, my friend, we wrap every single podcast with seven questions that tether all of our guests together. We've been doing this now for a while. More than 500 of our friends have gone through these questions. So they are safe. But the uh, the counselor is walking into the room. I'm sitting down next to you. And question number one of the Live Inspired Seven is what's been the most influential in a positive way book you've ever read? The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. For those who haven't read it, what's it about? It's about how to access the creativity that is given to every human. You don't have to be a painter, an artist, or a singer, but the capacity for creativity and innovation is a human capacity. It is a gift of the human experience, and that book helps you access it, whether you think you're creative or not. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up in Long Island that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Being able and willing to sing and dance without caring what other people think. See, and I, I thought you were dancing now. I thought you were like an aerial dancer. Is that right? I am. I am. And I care greatly what people think. And I get <laughs> terrified before performances. And I care way too much about how I'm performing. As a kid, oh, I didn't care. I'll twirl and do cartwheels and sing. And I don't care if you think I'm good or not. The ability to dance and not judge yourself with the way people are staring at you. That's awesome. If your home caught fire. And all living things are out and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item that matters to you. What's the one thing you would grab? I have a little box on a shelf with all of my childhood photos where you can see the pain on my face. And I've cut her out of the family photos. And so I have a box of just little pictures of me as a child where I can, I can see her now from where I sit, I can see her then I would go back and grab that. So you, you cut the little version of you out of all the family photos. That was my, it was a therapeutic uh, exercise where I, I rescued her. Like there were pictures of her with people that were not so safe around her. And so I went and cut her out and I have a little box full of all those pictures of that little girl. I'm glad she's with you. Me too. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day in Kansas city and have a long conversation with anybody living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? My husband. Oh. You haven't spoken much. I knew you got married a couple of years ago. What's your husband's name? 
His name is Mike. And I, I jokingly say, and he knows this, that he's a normie. He, you know, he is just a healthy, happy, functional person with a wonderful family. And, you know, everyone has, we all have our human stuff, but he's probably the most intelligent, generous, giving, happy person I know. And I'm so lucky to be his wife. Awesome. What's the best advice he or anyone else ever gave you? Well, the best advice he ever gave me was, so what? Like whenever I have an objection to why I can't do something or why I'm worried about something, it's so what? Like do it anyway. The best advice that I was ever given out in the world was the first counselor that told me, you're not crazy. You make sense. What would you tell your 20 year old self? It gets better, like <laughs> way better. Hang in there. Keep going. It, it gets awesome. Brett Frank, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? She lived. She lived. Brett Frank, thank you for living. Thank you for cutting that little girl out of those pictures and taking her forward with you and keeping her safe and respected and loved. And now doing the same for those that you counsel, those that you uh, share through podcasts and those you share and impact through your work as a speaker. Uh, you've lived well and you do matter. Thank you so much. My friends, that is Britt Frank. She's the author of The Science of Stuck. It's a great book. My name is John O'Leary and today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. Well, I love the concept of micro yeses. Something that Britt shared among with many other ideas during our conversation. By taking the smallest, most incremental step we can it frees us to transform our lives and move forward without triggering that doom of overwhelm. So what are the things that you've been putting off that you know need to get done in your life? Now, for some of us, that's going to be as simple maybe as decluttering the house. It's just a little bit messy. You haven't cleaned it out in a while. You've gone through more than a spring or five or ten without that spring cleaning. So start small. Clean out the closet, start with the drawer, clean out the fridge, but take that next step. For others, it may be a more difficult thing that requires your focus, like a relationship that's gone sideways that needs addressing, maybe a courageous conversation around that, maybe a long lost friend that it has been entirely too long since you've reached out to them. But it goes back to the idea of the micro yeses. Focus on the thing that matters most. Stay within your circle of influence and then take that next right step forward. It will transform your lives in little and in mighty ways, my friends. But start today. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, do me a favor and check out the conversation that I had with my buddy Jeff Henderson. Jeff is an expert at taking the next right step when life is uncertain. Learn the difference with Jeff between success and excellence as he outlines how to reduce the risk not to be bound by fear in seasons of change. You can listen in to Jeff Henderson at episode 490. And if you struggle finding episode 490 in your playbook, just do me a favor. Join me online at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. I will have a link to Jeff's interview right there under our show notes for this episode. I want to thank you, as we always do, for being part of our Live Inspire community. If you're getting value from these conversations, do me a favor. Tell a friend, a family member, someone you work with, worship with, work out with. 
that while they're listening to doom and gloom, you're listening to live inspired and you are lit up to change the world for good. And so should they be. My friends, the foundation is firm. The headwinds may be real, yes indeed, but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at Keely.com.